Running Backwards. Episode 3. <clears throat> Susan didn't call the police. Perhaps brassy TV amateurs were exempt from the code of practice. Instead, Mark Barry rapped a knuckle on the door and waited to be invited in, like a vampire. He shook his head, huffed out a flabbergasted little laugh, and proclaimed, <laughs> Fucking hell, mate! Parking his scrawny ass on the edge of Susan's desk, he proceeded to interrogate me, stepping through my confession with the analytical precision of a Barrow Boy barrister. Eventually he shut up and looked me up and down, biting on his lip as if to suggest he was chewing over a gnarly dilemma. I am convinced that he already knew exactly what he was going to do. You see, this puts me in a right awkward fucking position, doesn't it? I mean, I don't want to dob you in, mate, but what am I supposed to do? You come in here telling us you might have killed a bloke, well that's pretty fucking sheer as shit, isn't it? And the problem is, if I let you walk out of here, that makes me complicit, you know what I mean? I mean, I get what you're saying about not remembering exactly what the fuck happened, but what if something did happen? This Irish geezer went missing, right? You're pretty clear on that, so it don't look good, do it? But I don't want to hang you out to dry, do I? That's not the kind of bloke I am, you know. You come in here in good faith, I'd have to be some kind of fucking monster, wouldn't I? If I just dropped you at the fucking nick and left you to it. So, we need to figure something out, I reckon. The man was a knob, but at least he wasn't the cops. His proposal, which he artfully made irresistible, was a collaborative investigation wherein he would research Patrick Byrne's sudden withdrawal from existence, and I would set about documenting my experience of forgetting, subsequently remembering, and ultimately facing up to whatever it was that I did to him. Whilst the scrofulous little villain didn't issue any tangible threat, his offer of a chummy back-alley Holmes and Watson partnership was plainly underwritten with the guarantee of a discommodious phone call to the busies should I refuse to play ball. Also, it was time-limited. Susan was going to write her book, and I was going to appear in it. One way or another, news of my felonious deeds would be in the public domain within months. Wouldn't it be better if I got to tell the story first? We shook hands, a sensation not dissimilar to gripping a fistful of damp asparagus, and he promised to have contracts drawn up by Wednesday. The man does love a contract. I cogitated on the way home, also at home, in front of the telly, on the toilet, in the shower, and all night in bed, eventually failing to conclude any useful train of thought, but nonetheless restless with an uneasy supposition that this all might have gone too far. In thirty-odd years, nobody had kicked down my door and pulled me up before the beak. Surely somebody would have noticed that something was awry, if something indeed was awry, and surely that somebody would have had sufficient wit to at least examine potential culprits. 
and yet I'd heard nothing for decades, to the point where I didn't really remember if there was anything to remember. I phoned Mark Barry that morning and put forward my doubts. He hummed and hawed and told me to give him a couple of days. He didn't explain what the days were for, bog-snorkelling for all I knew, but I enjoyed for a while the sense that I had offloaded some responsibility, and even my daughter, who pays me so little attention that she'd walk through me if I wasn't so damn corporeal, noted that I seemed marginally more buoyant than of late. Mark Barry turned up at my door on Thursday morning. <laughs> he owns a briefcase! <laughs> Who'd have thought? I made the mistake, again, of inviting him in, and might as well have stabbed myself in the neck with a roasting fork and offered my spurting vein directly into his slobbering maw. We sat on the sofa, and without much preamble he produced the scrag end of the Wolfenberry Advertiser, and there it was, in black and white, or faded grey and pale pissy yellow after so many years, the inarguable proof. I had to go to the toilet. In a movie, I'd lean my hands on the sink and stare at myself in the mirror, furious and fuming. In real life, I pulled my willy out of my trousers and stood over the bowl, dangling uselessly, bone-weary and bleary. It was true. Patrick Byrne was dead, and my liability seemed inarguable. Fortunately, I remembered to pop my willy away before I returned to the sofa. Mark Barry had moved my coffee table over, and contracts were neatly laid out upon it, and so he outlined his plan. He was going to delay publication of Susan's book for six months. She wasn't going to be happy, he said, and there was a strong possibility that she would grow impatient and breach the non-disclosure terms of her agreement. Apparently she can be a right mouthy bitch when she don't get her fucking way. Therefore, I was going to go on the run. It was a ridiculous, almost infantile proposition, but Mark Barry, despite his crude vocabulary and grotesque phraseology, is an eminently persuasive mountebank, and he easily assured me that I needed time and anonymity to recall, research, and record my crime. He almost climaxed when I told him that I owned a motorbike, and his scheme suddenly blossomed, in his mind anyway, into an epic road movie ripe with peril, intrigue, romance, and self-discovery. I told him I'd give the self-discovery a go, but wasn't keen on either peril or intrigue, and that romance, with my hairline, was highly unlikely. By elevenses I had settled my fate, and Mark Barry was scooping his paperwork back into his Maxwell Scott. He left me with the relevant copies, a wet asparagus handshake, and the parting metallic whiff of an exquisite blood meal, artfully prepared and voraciously consumed. I draw pictures for a living. That's a reductive description, but the term illustrator is a curse. 
It perhaps sounds exotic, because whenever I wave it around, people, normally hairdressers, are momentarily intrigued and invariably make the dreaded inquiry, Anything I'd have seen? Why, yes, if you happen to have read the manual for the new Kumquat 470p wing-wang and chanced across the picture explaining how to link it seamlessly with your Bluetooth-enabled i-diddly-whatnot. They're no doubt anticipating Quentin Blake, and instead they get the bloke who sits at home in yesterday's socks drawing technical diagrams for weird foreign electrical goods. I'm not cut out for this shit. Monday. Mrs. Gulliver is dead. If the septic old witch could have just waited another 36 hours, I wouldn't have to give a shit, but her timing is extraordinarily inconvenient. I've panicked and booked myself into a travel lodge as Brian Reynolds. I set out to put as much distance as I could between myself and the Seaview Hotel, but I went wobbly after ten miles and had to find refuge. It feels like there's a helium balloon in my chest, all gas and no substance. I should be binge-drinking Jack Daniels with an unsteady hand, but I just feel sick and keep farting. Fuck! I need to calm down! There's a law, isn't there? If you're driving a car and witness an accident, you're not supposed to leave. Does that apply in other circumstances? For instance, if an old lady falls down two flights of stairs and ends up with her head on backwards, are you required to hang around, give a statement, account for your movements, provide ID? Shit! I need to write down what happened. Firstly, and for the record, I absolutely categorically did not kill her, but I did hear her go. I'd been tapping away on my laptop for most of the morning, and for the first time I was feeling moderately comfortable with the process of writing. It's a little like sex, I decided. The more you do it, the less self-conscious you feel about it. And that doesn't mean to say that you actually get any better at it, or that anybody will want to read what you've written, or that your metaphors won't collapse as soon as you try to expand them. But working through my story in short bursts and pausing regularly to take a coffee and a cigarette for a stroll around the patch of rutted turf, misidentified as a garden by the marketing guff, I was beginning to suspect that I was enjoying myself. Just after lunch, as I was wandering back into the hotel, subsequent to one of my perambulatory interludes, I heard shouting. Mr. Gunnover was apparently a waste of skin and hadn't lifted a fat finger to help around the place since Nigel left. I don't know who Nigel was, but he sounded pivotal, and apparently it was entirely Mrs. Gunnover's fault that he hadn't been back for near on thirty years. There were two sets of stairs at the Seaview Hotel. The main staircase was the dominion of the guests, if ever any arrived, and was accessed via the back passage which extended from the far end of the lounge bar. Alternatively, a narrow companionway rose into darkness from behind the bar itself, and presumably granted entry into whatever antediluvian habitat the Gunnivers occupied, 
when they weren't busy failing to run a thriving business. It was up there that the conflict was playing out, and I hurried past, too polite, I thought, to eavesdrop, before discovering that I wasn't. I stopped beyond the bar, close enough to the back passage to make a run for it, should I be discovered, and listened. They were really going for it, and Nigel was very much the heart of the matter. I justified my voyeurism on professional grounds, imagining that recounting this episode would add colour to my storytelling, and I mused for a moment on what name I should choose as an alias for the horrible old crones. Gulliver sprang to mind, although I couldn't say why. The altercation peaked with a great deal of screaming on behalf of both parties, which was irritating for being incomprehensible, and then I heard feet stomp across the ceiling and a door slammed. I lingered a moment, simply to ensure that I hadn't missed anything, then turned, intending to tiptoe down the passage. My retreat was forestalled by a startled womanly shriek from above, succeeded by the terrible sound of what could only be Mrs. Gulliver tumbling and thudding down the stairs. There was a brief silence, another shriek, and then the thudding resumed. The lateral part of my brain deduced that she must have turned a corner between the flights, but it was quickly distracted by a sickening, squelchy crunch as the poor woman reached the violent terminus of her descent, and indeed her life. It would have been entirely plausible for me to creep back to my room and feign ignorance of the entire episode, but let's be fair, who amongst us wouldn't go and look? So I went to look. Poor, horrid Mrs. Gulliver was in a ghastly tangle, her legs twisted in a crooked spiral, her arms pointing in directions they shouldn't, and her head spun around to take in a view of her own backside, which she could never have enjoyed in life. Fortunately, her eyes were closed, but her mouth wasn't, and her tongue, half-bitten through, was draped across her lower lip. Death is never tidy. There's something appalling in the instinct for self-preservation that caused me to reach into the pocket of her housecoat and steal her beloved post-it note, but I was grateful for its audacity when I discovered that beneath my made-up name she had at some point appended the very actual registration number of my motorbike. I was obviously going to sneak away before anyone was aware that Mrs. Gulliver had met her end, but I was fully aware that in so doing I would place myself under suspicion should anyone suspect that I had been there. Removing evidence of my presence was therefore de rigueur. I couldn't do much to ensure Mr. Gulliver's silence, but I had some confidence that his interest in whisky and his lack of interest in his own business would serve to secure my anonymity. As I hurried upstairs to collect my few belongings, I was struck by how imperturbable I seemed to be in the face of sudden violent death. That wasn't necessarily an auspicious predisposition given past events. 
However, it's reasonable now to conclude that what I was experiencing wasn't the level-headed clarity of the seasoned killer, but rather the misleading serenity that precedes a comprehensive mental spaz. By the time I joined the main road that promised to whisk me away from the Sea View Hotel forever, I was soggy with sweat and weaving so erratically that my bike looked like it was drunk and had forgotten the way home. I've just smoked three cigarettes, not quite simultaneously, but they definitely overlapped. My mouth tastes like Satan's bumhole, but my hysteria has abated somewhat. With the resumption of clarity has come an unfortunate realisation. An envelope of cash, the latest instalment from my miserly benefactor, was due to arrive at Mrs. Gunnivor's fine establishment today. My subtle departure was a little too hasty, it seems, and I cannot see any alternative than to return and attempt to retrieve the funds. There's no association through which they could be connected to me, and Mark Barry is always scrupulous in ensuring that his dispatches cannot be traced back to him. But the ignominious truth is that I can't survive without them. Should I decide to abandon this ridiculous adventure and volunteer my destiny to fate, I wouldn't even be able to afford enough petrol to get home. I could ask my daughter to come and rescue me. She has both my car and my credit cards on permanent loan. But would that in some way implicate her as an accomplice? Dan might be an option. I'd happily see him do ten years for joint enterprise. But more compelling is the desire not to prove myself to be the inveterate loser my daughter evidently thinks I am. Perhaps most children regard their parents as anemic underachievers. Gandhi's kids probably thought he spent too much time sitting around in his pants without ever properly committing to anything. In my case, the characterization is justified. My job is mind-numbing, and I only managed to pay the mortgage off early because my wife died and gifted me the proceeds of her life insurance. I don't have any friends. My family only instantiate themselves annually with formulaic Christmas cards, and I've never won an award other than a school prize for a love poem I wrote about a girl who was a foot taller than me. According to legend, she ended up giving a hand job to a sixth-form lad after he punched me in the head for perving over his bird. I can testify to the punch, if not the hand job. There was a fleeting moment, six weeks ago, when I thought that my daughter might actually look up from her phone and regard me with at least moderate interest. I craftily reimagined the truth and told her that I had secured a book deal and was heading out on a long journey to who knows where, for who knows how long, to live on the road and write of my adventures. Miracle of miracles, she did look up at me. Who's going to read that shit? And then she shoved her sneery little face back into her stupid bloody phone, and little more was said on the subject, beyond a brief monologue about paying bills and not burning the house down. I love my daughter, without question or condition. But sometimes she really gets on my tits.
some time later. I've written nothing in four days. In that time I have enacted a daring escapade, reunited an elderly homosexual with his long-lost lover, and performed an extraordinary feat of detective work. There's a strong possibility that I'm overstating all of these achievements, but I'm in a good mood today and will allow myself some gratuitous hyperbole. Inevitably, I must report that my current living arrangements are unsavoury. I pootled across the southern tip of the Yorkshire Dales five days ago, setting out in bright autumn sunshine with a youthful optimism which rapidly dissolved into crotch-rotting misery as the rain set in and pursued me mercilessly to this grubby little holiday park just west of York. I have secured for myself a unit which is just as glamorous as it sounds. Some might describe it as a static caravan because it is indeed a caravan, but it is suffering enforced rather than voluntary stasis on account of the fact that someone has stolen its wheels. In its favour it is watertight and only wobbles on its stand of carelessly stacked bricks if I move from one end to the other too rapidly. As this is a journey of no more than eight feet, there is little temptation to run up and down excitedly, and the wobbling has not therefore been a significant concern. What might happen in a high wind is a different matter. Extraordinarily, the Wi-Fi is excellent. The first, and indeed second, of my recent accomplishments occurred on the evening of the day that Mrs. Gunnover took her bone-crunching nosedive into whatever the hotelier's equivalent of Valhalla might be. I reasoned that I would be able to approach the sea view most discreetly under the cover of darkness. This is one of those TV tropes we've all boorishly accepted and never questioned. Of course, the good guys go in after dark. It's dark. Nobody could possibly see them coming. Plainly, this stratagem is bullshit, as I discovered at the expense of my trousers. The peculiar thing about dark is that you can't bloody see anything, unless you keep your headlights on, under which circumstance everyone in a five-mile radius can see you. This only dawned on me as I turned off the main road and my high beam lit the front of the Seaview Hotel like a Broadway spotlight. Panicking, I switched it off and immediately drove onto the verge and hit a log. Motorbikes are tremendous fun, but they do somewhat rely on the rider being able to see where they're going. Also, they have a tendency to fall over when you drive them at logs. I landed badly, with a foot-peg jammed into the scrawny bit of my calf and my arse in a slick of mud. The T120 isn't an especially heavy bike, unless you're pinned underneath it, of course. I was forced to slither out of its clutches, further decorating my trousers with a gouache of oil and filth, and ripping one leg to the cuff. I left the bike where it lay and decided to go in on foot. This also proved problematic, given that it was, as I mentioned, dark, and I hadn't thought to bring a torch. 
I navigated with the assistance of the tiny flashlight on my phone, which was just about sufficient to prevent me from breaking an ankle, but was utter crap in terms of plotting a stealthy approach through the trees. I progressed instead by blundering up the road, rather than sneaking through the undergrowth, and made it to the foot of the drive from where I surveyed the target. The downstairs lights were on. That's all I could report. There were no ambulances, no police tape, no circling helicopters. I had been gone for perhaps seven hours. Was that all it took to investigate a death and clear the scene? You may have deduced that I wasn't an admirer of Mrs. Gunnivor, but to have her passing wrapped up so expeditiously seemed shameful. Seventy-something years, and within an afternoon they've scraped her up, chucked her in a box, and forgotten about her. It worked out well for me, in the fact that there were no authorities to avoid, but still. Eschewing my tradecraft, I walked to the front door like a normal person, if you discounted the shit all over my trousers, and found it ajar. Doors are only ever ajar when there's something awry. Otherwise, they're just open a bit. I pushed it open a bit more and interrogated my senses. There wasn't much to see from the hall, and the building was silent. Also, I couldn't taste anything, and my somesthetic faculty was preoccupied in attempting to determine whether the mud had soaked through to my actual bum. But there was a smell. It could easily have been attributed to the fallout from Mr. Gunnivor's Sunday roast had it not been twenty-four hours since its consumption. It most definitely shared a meaty, cabbagey hue, but surely even the most disagreeable cuisine couldn't linger this long in the air. As I moved beyond the hall, the odour intensified. That's not to say that it was intense, but it tainted every inhalation just enough to discomfort and peaked as I entered the bar. Running Backwards was written by Nick Forshaw and performed by Stuart Organ. Direction was by Alex Cazalet and the producer was Steve Manley. It was a Barefoot Ape production. If you're enjoying the series, we'd really appreciate it if you could leave a rating and a review and tell your friends. And if you'd like to support the show, please visit runningbackwards.co.uk. 